0: welcome to fast forward brought to you by commotion your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility as always i'm your host greg Lindsay, director of strategy for commotion and almost as always i'm joined by joda bliss vp of media and marketing for commotion how are you joda Uh,
1: as always i'm happy to be here with you greg (laughs)
0: Well, I think you're really going to enjoy our our session this week here. We've got as our guest uh, Edward Niedermeyer, who's, of course, co-host of the AtanaCast. Always risky, bringing in another podcast host. In the future, we will all have podcast interviews for 15 minutes with other podcast hosts. Um, but he's also the author of *Ludicrous: the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors, and Communications Director for Partners for Automated Vehicle Education, the industry consortia on AVs. I should note that he's speaking in a personal capacity, and oh, what a conversation it is. We get into Tesla, SPACs, and basically how uh, it appears that the uh, auto startup industry or mobility startup industry seems to have learned all the worst lessons from Tesla. So it's going to be a juicy conversation in just a bit. But, all my
1: favorite topics. I was to say
0: all the things that we've talked a bit about here in the, in the last few weeks. Finally, bringing it all to a head here. It's like it's like a multi. Or it's like a limited edition series on Netflix, Jonah. We're just bringing it to a conclusion here uh, near the end of the year. So
1: yeah, it's Elon's gambit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly like playing the russians here and only you know I and mean, just with less drugs if only i had the the tranks that she had for that when doing this podcast
1: i, I wouldn't mind being tranked up for all of 2020
0: <laughs> it would have been the right way to spend it there making chess moves on the ceiling of my bedroom but um, there, there's some there's some fan service for you, Queens Gambit fans. But what do we got for news this week? Speaking of like AVs, EVs, and everything in between, what's kicking off the top of your news agenda for this uh, week?
1: Never a dull moment, especially if you love you know jumping out of uh, the wayward traffic. But um, before we get to the most terrifying parts of it, um, over in China, the launch of the first you know fully autonomous robo taxi service by AutoX, X, uh, which is one of the heavy hitters out there, backed by all the Alibaba money. They are now supposedly live, fully autonomous, and you know, roaming, roaming the dangerous streets of Shenzhen. I would say, having been in Shenzhen, I don't know if I would consider the streets dangerous.
0: Well, I don't know. For no, I mean, now. They, <laughs> yes, that's true. They perhaps have gotten a little bit more. We, we, we kid because we love. We know, we know that they are no worse than the human drivers they populate. But but yes, it's interesting to see. And I'll be curious to see you. Know, we've talked for years, you know, and there's this, this presumed arms race between locales, right? The whole race to be, you know, AV test beds and doing live fire exercises. I wonder if that's all been normalized now, right? Like, does it matter if you're the first city in China to have robo-taxis? Do, do, do people care? Are they excited about this now? Or is this so utterly normalized? That's, and it's just sort of like, okay.
1: Yeah. It is, I mean, what does it mean to be like, yeah, we've caught up with Phoenix? <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: And, you know, in Singapore, like you could have come across one of those, you know, years ago kind of thing like that in their various trials. So it'll be interesting to see whether cities will continue to tout themselves as leading on the edge of this. And, oh, look,
1: cars that drive themselves. Wow. Well, that, that reminds uh, me, before we talk about more self-driving cars, is there anything else that's self-driving around China right now, Greg? <laughs>
0: Well, I would say my favorite. So, those of you who have, have, have hung out with our uh, our AV uh, sibling here, the Commotion Live, uh, you know that a while back, we had at an ungodly hour of 8 p.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. China time, uh, a whole session on sort of how China's AV startups were sort of, you know, turbocharged by the early pandemic there, uh, which, of course, China solved very neatly in February, you may recall now. Um, but one of one of those companies was Neolix, uh, which you know unveiled its sort of you know uh, another breadbox-shaped autonomous vehicle, but one that was multi-purpose. It was not about driving people; it was about driving things. Well, Neolix has has struck there. They've got a deal with KFC to basically do self-driving chicken. And to me, that's interesting in a couple of respects. It does not actually cook the chicken, unlike our friends. I forget them now; we've banished Zoom. them from our thought. Oh God, I shudder as I think about this. The soft bank money spent on you know self on cooking your pizzas, self cooking pizzas. Pizza, but, but worse. Got <laughs> but they've got a deal there. And the thing that stands out about the KFC for me with the long-term implication of this deal for Neelix is that they showed us slides in their presentation – uh, about how they would dispatch the vehicles to where the people were. You know, of course, all of real estate, including fast food franchises, right, is about site selection, having the location, location, location. And Neelix, among many others, is explicitly trying to overturn this by dispatching the infrastructure to where the people are. So that should be an early early test case for sort of, you know, will this further decrease the importance of real estate and, you know, continue the sort of ghost restaurantification Bring the chicken to the people. Yes, exactly. That's what the people want. So we'll see there. But, you know, you know, again, China, China is the future for better or for worse, folks. Uh, but what else we got? Speaking of like self driving stuff, and speaking of you know our guests this week, we're going to get into the financialization here of of, uh, of you know the automotive sector, and leading the charge in that, of course, is our friends at Tesla. Right? What have
1: they done this yeah, week? There's there's two things that don't seem to stop when you expect they would. <laughs> one: Tesla's you know stock continuing to rise, you know, irrespective of gravity. So you know, flirting with six hundred bucks this uh, this past week as they got listed on the S and P five hundred. And then, of course, also not stopping when you'd want them to is they're now you know fairly widely deployed, full self-driving, which there's just been news reports of them you know blowing past uh, you know fire trucks and ambulances with their lights and sirens on, uh, and all sorts of uh, you know what you might call an edge case, but it sounds a little little more extreme than an edge case when it's uh, real human beings. I would say I'll withhold commentary
0: on, on Tesla stock and the S and P, which gave it, of course, another boost because of the various reallocations that happen in very large, you know, portfolios of pension funds and things when a stock enters the S and P. So there's a case of the rich getting richer. But I mean, when it comes to full self driving, I've got two additional thoughts there. One of which is, of course, uh, you know the I mean, the fact that David Zipper, our, our pal, just published a piece in Slate, basically calling for the Biden FTC to shut it down with that kind of terminology on that. And it'll be very interesting to see if a Biden FTC follows the, the the path of the Germans and others who basically said, no, you can't actually call it that. And the other that I have, it was the completely bananas tweet by Robert Scoble, who is, of course, a completely bananas person, uh, basically paying homage to the traffic fatalities of people killed by Tesla software as effectively, you know, debugging the training set, which, I think also shows just sort of like how dehumanized we've become to some of the casualties here that by, by this. So I don't know, I mean, I don't have to continue to tear down Scoble on here because the Twitter mobs came for him there and, you know, he later sort of walked it back and claimed, you know, that he was just there for the clicks, but you know, but <laughs> I, yeah, just, just utterly crazy thoughts here by the Tesla fandom on, you know, on what full self-driving actually means. And the short answer of course is, it's not actually full
1: self-driving, but. But what else we got, Jonah? Before I start frothing at the mouth, before we all get scoblerized, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, jumping from AVs to EVs, there were some exciting announcements. Um, on the slightly dorkier side, um, Kia and Hyundai announced their sort of forthcoming 2021 and into the future lineup, which is, I think, the interesting thing is that it relies on an 800 volt battery architecture, so kind of allowing for uh, faster charging. That uh, honestly, I think, I think I even kind of supersedes what most of like the, the best charging equipment in the US uh, will support at this moment. So it's a little, little future looking. Uh, so for your, you know, Kona or solar or Nero of the next generation, you could you know, plug that bad boy in and get juiced in just a few minutes. I'm very excited about that. Here, here in Montreal, you know they've just relaunched uh, a Teo,
0: which was the ahead of its time, beautiful electric ride-hailing service that you know uniform drivers paid all wages. It was like my my personal dream version of ride-hailing, and um, you know they went bankrupt, of course. But they've just relaunched with an all-electric Kia fleet here, so it'll be very interesting to sort of see if this breathes new life with that lower to- total cost of ownership. Uh, about whether we can start seeing, you know, like non wage exploitative electric ride hailing, uh, you know, business models start to pencil out. So ah, I mean, exciting. it's not
1: that reminds me, it's, it's not electric, but it's kind of similar to the the launch of Alto out here in Southern California, which is the uh, similarly all employee driven, uh, you know, TNC alternative. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I gotta say, it's, it's a weird time to try and launch a new ride sharing option anywhere in the world, no matter what your business model is. But, uh, you know, when you got internal benchmarks to hit, I guess you, you do what you got to do.
0: That's true. Well, also, there's some more EV
1: news, right? Our friends at Lucid, I think, has a recent announcement. Yeah, our friends at Lucid, anyone that uh, caught us at Commotion Alley Live a couple weeks ago heard from Peter Rawlinson. Uh, No wonder who's so happy. They just finalized their big factory in, what, Casa Grande, Arizona. So starting off with, I believe, 35,000 cars a year capacity, but uh, supposedly able to ramp up to 400,000 electric cars a year, which makes me think there's going to be more than just uh, Lucid Dreams coming out of that bad boy. Indeed. They've got the electric SUVs coming there. So, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be
0: hearing more from them for sure. Um, all right. Well, beyond automotive, what else we've got? Beyond automotive,
1: I mean, yeah, big, big week for other news items. We've got uh, SoftBank pouring fresh Vision Fund 2 money into Flock Freight, uh, San Diego County-based um, freight logistics disruptor, uh, a cool $113.5 million investment at a 500 mil post cap. So, Congrats to you, Flock. I think you had like 82 followers on Twitter, and so now you've raised, you know, more than like, <laughs> you know, now, now that is quite a metric there. You know, yeah, the the millions per follower metric. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, a little more electrification news: Sydney, Australia, aiming to electrify their entire bus fleet by 2030, um, and they're also kind of making noise about trying to do this with more domestic manufacturing. Uh, and it's been a, a rough decade or so for you know, automotive or really any sort of transport vehicle manufacturing down under. Um so this could be an interesting way to try and re energize that sector uh with a little bit of government love.
0: Very nice. And you know meanwhile what's happening is speaking of like alternate realities here where there's you know pandemics under control, I, I believe China's metro has hit another uh, milestone.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um let's let's start with the the good public transit news, which is of course yeah. not in the US. So um indeed in Guangzhou, and I'm not going to get the pronunciation right because it's one of those, you know, I'm sure cities of 10 million that I've never heard of, but Zuxo, um inaugurating two new metro lines and uh, with many, many more on the way in the next couple of years. So just continued growth and investment. Uh, can't, can't imagine anything like that over, over on yonder parts of the world. <laughs> but then that was good news. Who wants bad news, Greg. Uh, it feels like we it feels like we end every new segment with you know with more uh, transit bloodbath news here in the United States. But hit me, Jonah. Uh, so today let's let's think about our our poor friends in DC, WMATA. They're even the best of times beleaguered <laughs> transit agency. Their own sort of you know COVID ridership bloodbath projections, uh, possibly even worse than the New York MTA's. So they're saying they might have to close 19 stations, shut the system down at 9 p.m. at night. And some train lines would only run every thirty minutes, which basically puts you in commuter rail territory um that's that's pretty grim that's up there with what's
0: what the m t a of course has been promising in New York there with similar you know self described doomsday budgets um Yes, it is. I would say that by far the bleakest sector uh, needing a bailout in the United States that is non-public health related has to be transit. And, you know, the consequences will be dire if we decide to dynamite them. I
1: mean, we'll we'll Uh, see how much of this is just sort of the boy crying wolf to, you know, scare people into funding them. And, you know, given just how unlikely any sort of substantial bailouts looking, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens when the rubber meets the road. Well, Joe, tell me we have some good news here before we pivot over to, this, to the sauciness. One bit of good news. So, uh, NACTO just released a new survey uh, looking at, or not survey, some research looking at micromobility. And it's been kind of a long point of contention. Uh, are these scooter trips replacing things that has been you know, walking or active transport? Uh, but it looks like, by and large, people that use micromobility would have otherwise taken a personal car or summoned an Uber or Lyft. So they looked at a broad swath of different cities across the country, some very transit friendly, some not. And 45% of micro-release trips would have otherwise been in a personal car or ride hail. Uh, and only you know, 9% would have been transit, 28% walking, which is still you know, a decent amount. But uh, and 18% wouldn't have otherwise taken the trips. So in a way, it's still increasing utility, by and large, replacing vehicle trips. So I think we can count this up as a win for our scooter friends. Very nice. I say I'm 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 generally a fan of micro mobility. I know there are many who are
0: not, uh, but I see its potential. But this does have a sort of a logic of a old lady who swallowed a fly and then swallowed <laughs> a spider to catch the fly and swallowed the cat to catch the spider. I'm curious to see how many more modes we'll have to release here until we finally tame all of our externalities. Uh, spoken spoken like someone that has a couple young children at home, and <laughs> In, indeed, thinking of the, the illustrated version that I'll be reading to the three-year-old later tonight. Um, well, with that, I've teased it long enough here, but I'm, I'm very excited to welcome out of our guest uh, Ed Niedermeyer. If you know him on Twitter, he's Twittermeyer, uh, where there's no shortage of takes. And so, uh, having seen a recent discussion he has, uh, you know, about basically sort of like what's going on with SPAC mania and the fact that the OEMs can't catch a break, uh, we invited Ed on to sort of uh, further explicate that logic. So, so without further ado. Welcome, Ed Niedermeyer. Thanks for joining us, Ed.
2: Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Well, I say it's, it's always risky having another podcast host on one's podcast because, like, you know, you, you risk crossing the streams here. Um, but we definitely want to have you on. We're overdue and partly because you had some interesting recent tweets about the uh, the ongoing mania of, like, EV startup culture. And I was particularly taken by your point that, you know, that General Motors, right, which has been investing heavily in, in acquiring crews and making these investments in battery technology, everything else has seen its stock stagnate. And then you have something like Nikola, of course, which is building this huge valuation despite some shady tactics. And, yeah, it starts to point to, like, the crazy incentives that are happening throughout the EV market, of course. And I'd love to ask you some thoughts on SPACs as well. And I guess I'm, I'm curious as a, as a first question about your sort of – your view on the sector. I mean, obviously, you don't speak for PAVE and its members. And you have thoughts, of course, on Tesla, which we can come to as well. But, you know, how much longer can this last, right? Is, is like the music going to stop soon? Or, or what's going to happen with all these SPACs and everything else that's going on?
2: You know, it's a really, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, we are just in such a a fascinating moment right now. And, and, you know, when I first, you know, so I I started writing, um, my book ludicrous about, about Tesla, what, you know, over three years ago now, um, actually over, yeah, actually I I really first started about five years ago. What was the
0: stock price then when you started? Yeah.
2: (laughs) So, so that, so, I mean, uh, you know, even back then in 2015, when I started, um, it, it was very high, right? Um, pretty much ever since 2013, Tesla's stock has been, you know, generous at, at, at best, which, you know, and again, like, it's it's hard to know what the future holds, right? No one knows for sure. And so knowing exactly what their financial performance will be, and whether or not it's justified, there are always going to be questions and differing viewpoints on that, right? But, but from basically, ever since the stock went crazy in 2013, people were like, this is wild that, that this valuation is here, and and what's hilarious is looking back that those valuations that we thought were so high back then um, are a tiny, tiny fraction of the what over half a trillion dollars now that Tesla's worth. I think they're over five hundred billion dollars. Um, so I think like you know, for me, I mean, I've kind of been asking this question for a long time of like you know when do we you know start to temper the hype around the fact that things are changing in the auto industry and they will change? Um, how, how do we temper you know, that excitement with sort of the realities of the fact that this is a, an industrial manufacturing industry and therefore it's never going to be just like smartphones or something like that? Um, and, and actually, that was really the whole point of my book was to really sort of tell the Tesla story. You know, the Tesla story I felt had always been told by people from the tech world um, and it was sort of the, the narrative was always, you know, here's this company that's bringing tech culture essentially to the auto industry, and and that's going to be successful because look at all the the things that um, tech culture has been successful at. And I think that you know, for me, the 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 story is actually very different. You know, yes, Tesla's you know bringing the tech culture to to the auto industry has allowed it to be very good at. at at, at certain things right um and I think the things that you that sort of everyone agrees are good about Tesla right like the engineering the performance the battery you know technology efficiency or you know the pack efficiency and and all that their core stuff um it, it's all really good and and they develop cars really fast and but but sort of the other perspective that I want to bring I felt like you know the general public could understand that sort of tech narrative really well because tech and tech culture has become such a big part of our lives, but people don't really know much about the auto industry. And I'd been studying the auto industry, you know, pretty in depth since 2008. And, and I wanted to show sort of like, you know, that, that, you know, what is the difference, use the Tesla story to understand what's the difference between tech culture and, and auto manufacturing culture, and sort of how are the strengths and weaknesses of both uh, reflected in the strengths and weaknesses of, of Tesla. Um, and you know, I, I I've kind of ever since I you know wrote that book or started working on that book, I've kind of been expecting you know that that sort of things would shift on this, and that sort of over time, and especially because you know the problems with not having a, a manufacturing culture get much worse as as you get to a bigger. Uh, scale right. As you, as improvisational
0: you scale debt is a phrase I love in that regard. Right, like Tesla has a huge accrued improvisational debt of that yeah. uh, they can't scale. They can't scale because of that debt.
2: It's a yeah, and and they can't scale without creating more problems. And the problem is, is that they can't just embrace manufacturing culture. Um, they and 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 I think that you know the stock price has always sort of reflected this reality that the tech narrative resonates with the public and i think where tesla is now is that you know their the most important thing to their company is is not their products or their customer service or or anything like that it's really just that that perception and particularly among investors that you know the tech approach is just going to win and so they've kind of keep having to double down on it and um and i think what you know one of the really interesting things is what we're also learning now is not just that you know, that's not so good for manufacturing. It's also really not a good approach to uh, autonomous driving or really safety critical, uh, uh, you know, automation development either. Um, but again, when, when the public sort of <laughs> cottons onto this stuff, like, I don't know, I've been asking myself for years and I guess we'll see.
0: Well, well, this comes back to, I mean, you mentioned like, you know, that that, that blurring of the line between tech culture and automotive culture. I mean, the, the interesting thing about Tesla, and, like what sort of, what strikes me is what's happening now with, with, with you know, the fact that Hindenburg research basically has a whole sideline and just like EV, you know EV, you know manufacturers that they're shorting and, and research reports. Um, it's like I, I don't know if it was you or someone else has sort of pointed out that you know that one of the lessons or the like the lessons that the the wave of EV manufacturers and AV manufacturers after Tesla seems to have learned is that like to succeed sometimes you got to do a little bit of fraud, right? Like just a, just a little bit of fraud, and if you don't get caught, then you're a visionary once you finally succeed. And if you do get caught, uh, that you're out of the game. Uh, and it seems like that 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 sort of permissiveness in this that you've got to play fast and loose with it has definitely been the lesson that's been internalized at least by several players in the field and the players who are getting some of those valuations. So I, I'm curious like is that, is that is that the lesson they've taken away from this that basically they have to you know play just as just as, fly just as close to the sun as Elon did once upon a time with the taxpayers'
2: money in 2009, et cetera Yeah, I mean I, I, look, I think that's I think you know it's impossible to look at sort of what Tesla has done to survive. Um, and again, beyond just sort of the things that people like about their cars, they've had to on, on numerous occasions. You know, I, I, in the book, I document three different times where they announced that they had funding before they'd actually secured it. Um, you know, so two times before even the most infamous one in 2018. And and there's you know, I mean, the, the battery swap uh, uh, thing, which was the first story that sucked me into it, where they got tens to hundreds of millions of dollars in, in additional credits from California by. You know, saying they were going to do a battery swap, but really not actually doing it. I mean, the the history of the company is full of these things. I think full self driving is the latest, most blatant example of this "fake it till you make it." And even in some cases, you might be faking something that is impossible to make, which I think is the case in uh, with, self, with full self driving. Um, but but the reality is, is that you know that approach has made them worth you know more than basically the rest of the auto industry combined. Um, mm-hmm. How could you look at that and not conclude that? that's the way to be successful in this business. And I think it, what's interesting about this is that Tesla kind of had an excuse, kind of, in the sense that they were not only just experimenting bringing tech culture into the into the auto industry, they were experimenting with using venture funding uh, to, 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 to start an automaker. And I think there's a lot of, of elements to venture capitalism. And, and, and we know that high-tech VC, you know, this issue of fake it till you make it is one that has been sort of a recurring issue and, and, and kind of even venture capitalists themselves admit it's hard to know where the line is between optimism and fraud. Right. Um, And that's sort of just a part of the culture. I think we learned that that's not great, a great way to um, develop an auto an automaker because, you know, the car business is one that has to be planned so strategically, so long in advance. There's these long development cycles, uh, industrialization, all these other things. It, it's probably best to just sort of figure out the amount of money you need for ten years or whatever it is to get off the ground and, and raise it all at once and, and launch from there. Because Tesla got into this funding, you know, uh, funding uh, 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 treadmill, which is again quite common among startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of forced them to do things, you know, where they're constantly making more big promises and then raising money on those big promises that they used to pay off for the last promise. And like, you know, so so Tesla kind of had that excuse because they kind of got into trouble and had to keep raising these rounds and kind of got on that treadmill. These new companies, they're going public with SPACs. And so they're not, they, you know, they're not engaging in this sort of dance that VCs and founders you know, sort of get into and kind of both have to some extent their eyes open on, they're essentially bringing that dynamic into public markets, which is, a very strange thing because very clearly public market investors are not and are not expected to be as sophisticated as professional venture capitalists.
0: Well, i would say that's my next question on this, too. I mean, and I'm curious your take on this. Obviously, like, you know, one of the narratives of, of Tesla stock and, and the SPAC narrative during the pandemic is, of course, I, I don't know, this is my, my take on it anyway, is that it ties into the creeping thought that, you know, that Robinhood and other democratization of investing tools have turned this into a spectator sport or some other form of truly legalized gambling where you have. Very low information stock buyers uh, who are you know, are propelling this and now and of course you know now Tesla's been turbocharged with the S and P five hundred which triggers all these formulas for ever, for asset allocation but um, but I'm, but you know do you think that's part of this I mean you know when we're seeing when we're seeing like New Jersey real estate outfits buy Chinese publicly traded companies on the penny sheet so they can reverse engineer that and buy TikTok houses and float those on the pink sheet so that basically they can get teenagers to buy the stock price it's making me think that like there's no real market dynamics at work here and I'm. Curious if you have a sneaking suspicion that's driving some of the SPAC game as well. This is about the narrative totally, and they're they're pushing it on unsuspecting investors.
2: So I think the the SPAC thing, and the, so so first of all, yes, like I, someone today was just sort of compared it to um, on Twitter, uh, and I'm forgetting who it was. Exactly, so I won't say a, a that's name. Twitter for sure. you. But someone, someone one of the the many very intelligent, thoughtful people I follow on Twitter, um, compared it to essentially social media. So it's like uh, people buying stock is like you know clicking like on a Facebook post from a brand that they like. It's it's just a way to sort of support uh, this company uh, and also to some extent align your interests with theirs. And and one of the the really fascinating things about Tesla is that they brought this whole other dimension to being a car fan, right? Like car, car fandom has been around for a hundred years in this country. We've <laughs> gone in a lot of different directions with it. It's had a lot of cultural influence, but what we've never, well, we haven't seen really since the, the stock booms, boom years of the 1920s, which might be an interesting comparison for a bunch of reasons. Uh, we haven't seen sort of this, this um, sort of mania around car companies as investments, Right, the industry's been consolidating into more and more big, mature companies, and those aren't the kinds of things that investors are like. I'm going to get in on the ground floor here, right? You, you can't. It's a, it's a, they're century old companies, right? Um, but with this new crop of startups, now all of a sudden we have this environment where they might not have a car that you can buy, um, but you can still be a fan by buying their stock and by you know then repeating their narratives. And so I think that's a really fascinating phenomenon, especially when it gets tangled up in the um, sort of internets and social media sort of tendency to kind of extreme, uh, uh, drive things to the extremes, polarize, right. And, and radicalize um, which we know from a bunch of different things, but, but, but the SPAC thing, I mean, I think this, so, so I think, yeah, so, so Tesla created this new way of relating to cars and car companies and the car space, um, mm-hmm. which is more like how kind of people in the tech sector related to the rest of the tech sector. And, um, and, uh, you know, I th- and I think but I think that with the SPACs, I think that's it's a lot of it is just sort of a symbol uh, or, or a reflection of how far out of control this whole Tesla phenomenon has got and the narratives mm-hmm. around it have gotten. Right. It's yeah, the, the, the valuation itself is crazy, but but it's been so effective at, at pumping up this valuation in a way that is totally independent from the the. Realities of the business itself, um, that that you know, why wouldn't people just sort of follow on in this? And and what's really interesting to me is that you know, yeah, there are definitely some you know questionable companies that are are going public and and getting you know their valuations are growing. Nikola obviously is the most notorious of those. Um, but there's also really good ones, too, right? I mean, there are companies that I think, and and with all of them, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. we'll have to see exactly how it pans out. But like, you know, I think of a company company like Rivian as being kind of a really good example of what I was sort of the point of of the book that I uh, uh, ludicrous about Tesla, which is you know the successful companies are gonna be the ones who bring the good aspects of the tech sector and and tech culture uh, to cars. While also respecting, um, you know, and balancing that with uh, the culture that's been successful and refined over a century of, of manufacturing and managing big car companies, and so so you have this weird mix in this back world of of companies I think are like post Tesla in a positive way, where they've they've internalized the, the the lessons of what to do, but also what not to do from Tesla. But then I think the problems are the ones the companies, and again, Nikola is such an obvious example because they even use. It's right, it'sué. it's Nikola. I Maybe you know, it's, it's the same name. It's the ones have that try I, and ape Tesla. Those just. are the ones that seem to be, like most directly, seem to be the ones that, that are the scammiest.
0: Yeah. Now, having recently watched Michael el- el- Almereda's uh, Tesla documentary, it's remarkable to me that we have two giantly, you know, evaluated car companies named after each half of his name. Yeah. Um, but one, one last question for you then. I, I guess to f- bring it back to the focus of the OEMs then for a second, you know, as you pointed out as the tweet that I mentioned at the beginning, like, you know, GM making, you know, making good, firm, solid decisions here. But ultimately, you know, this could come back to haunt them. And I, and I, I think sometimes or I worry sometimes, I mean, right, like, you know, before Amazon was the world beating juggernaut that it is today, for a long time, there were plenty of people who were suspicious of it, that it never made any profits. And, and in a way, like it's sort of ultimate long-term competitive advantage was is that it trained the markets to never expect profits from Amazon. Just keep giving it money and it would just keep growing and it would never return to you and that allowed it to basically swamp other incumbents. And, um, you know, I guess my question is, you know, what's your prognosis for someone like a GM or a Volkswagen or the other companies that have committed aggressively to spending tens of billions of dollars on electrification strategies but are not getting any bump in the markets out of this that they might need to, you know, later raise more capital to sort of fund this transition then? I mean, you know, has this become a self-fulfilling prophecy where the markets lead to the downfall of the incumbents because they just don't want to hear the story anymore
2: yeah so i mean i you know the fact that the fact that you know sort of the lesson that people seem to be taking out of the the nicola episode is you know oh gm should have been like you know should have had better due diligence it's it's not that that's not true right you know i think everyone could always probably have better due diligence about things but um as i sort of was saying on on twitter right like like GM was doing all the things that the market says it wants in terms of investing in autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. They have some of the most ambitious electric vehicle plans out there, and they weren't getting the stock bump. And so, you know, you know, Nikola had only the the sort of you know meme stock hype and nothing else. Um, and so, you know, it made sense to structure a deal the way that the GM did uh, to to get you know that association um, with whatever it is that people are seeing in, in Nikola. And you know the fact that that sort of the, the the thing that people are writing about you know sort of coming out of this is like GM should have done better due diligence. Like no, the the situation is much is not only much deeper than that, but also the fact that we're you know sort of focusing on GM as being the one to blame here um, is really weird because ultimately they were just sort of following the the signals that the market is, is sending very clearly. And you know you can are you could argue you know either way. I think whether or not you know, one whether one company's you know plans for the EV market are better than others, when one strategy is better than others, pros and cons there. The, the what's troubling is the increasingly also unambiguous signal that, like, if you're a legacy company, you can't possibly sort of have a future. Um, mm-hmm. That that you have to be a startup. It's a really it's not rooted in in a good understanding i don't think of the business i mean look the, the the auto industry has been consolidating for a century why would it suddenly make sense to decompose all that into a bunch of little startups um i understand from an investor's perspective you know why you want to invest in a startup and not a big mature company that that i get um but yeah so i think i think you know i think we still have clearly have a long way to go Towards and I mean we as in you know a com- a, a country a you know a public uh, we have a long way to go toward uh, to really understand the the what it is that automakers do um, that is so hard to replace and and I think what's interesting too is if you look at the AV sector you know everyone sort of thought like oh Waymo was going to sort of you know develop AV technology and then sort of force all of the automakers to just sort of become Foxconn to it and what's been fascinating is now you know that's actually inverted and and we actually have uh, av developers competing for oem partnerships right and so i think it goes to show how wrong uh you know popular perceptions can be and that ultimately what the stock market is is measuring right now is not the the quality of tesla's plans or 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 any of these other startups plans per se and i was mean, saying it's about the good ones and the bad ones alike i don't think that's what the stock market is measuring i think the stock market is measuring the extent to which american public just is totally out of touch with with what works in cars and what matters in cars and what doesn't uh, in, in the car business. Um, and so yes, there's change coming, but the fund this was still going to be fundamentally a an industrial manufacturing business. And um, you know, again, you have to temper that you know what's worked for the last hundred years with with tech culture because clearly that's becoming a bigger part of that business. But but you know, it's going to be about balancing those two. It's not one or the other. Um, and what I what I see just coming out of the the sort of investment phenomenon is just you know it, it's kind of a game for people, and it's a game that's based on this idea that everyone gets tech narratives. Um, and and so you know they have these these narratives that are just simple to understand and and people respond to them, and people know that everyone else is going to respond to them. Um, and you know it's all happening in the shadow of the iPhone, which has completely transformed our lives in ten years. So it's understandable why everyone thinks all this stuff. But the reality is, is uh, you know, yeah, these, these are perception. We're in the realm of perception here. And, and what it is that gets us back into the realm of reality, I don't know. But historically, it's not um, a comfortable process to come back to reality.
0: That, a, a sobering thought to conclude with. Thank you so much for joining us, Ed.
2: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. You know, Jonah, it's not
0: just like the intersection of tech culture and classic manufacturing, right? It's the it's the financialization element that's been added to this, right? It's uh, it's the fact that like now we have Wall Street and gamified financialization. These crazy dynamics are being, you know, piled upon this, and like I shudder to think what's going to happen to you know the good real world assets of somebody like. I can't believe I'm feeling sympathetic for like General Motors and Volkswagen. But like, you know, they're they're here to actually just produce cars. I I don't know. Maybe there's a sort of burn it all down, jokerified element that that thinks it'll be a good thing if SPACs bring down the automotive sector. But uh, I imagine there's a lot of people who are going to get hurt by this when this stuff finally unwinds.
1: Get Mary Barra on TikTok.
0: That might be the secret there. I mean, the Chinese will soon have all of her secrets, but if they don't have them all now from the GM SAIC tie-up, I mean, I don't know what else there is to give. So, that's probably a good idea. Well. In any case, that that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Um, Once again, thank you all for listening. We will be back next week with a new episode. Uh, We haven't figured out our holiday posting schedule yet, but we're going to carry this through uh, until, you know, just like everything else I've seen, until an unreasonably late period. Just like we're all working longer hours, we're all going deeper to the year. So... You know, I think you can expect an episode, maybe, maybe December 21st, uh, maybe later after that, we'll see how Joan and I feel in the office, (laughs) in the office, (laughs) in the office, but until then listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Take care, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.